Religion presents a bewildering maze of perspectives. Some people prefer to avoid it entirely, but is that even possible? If you choose to be non-religious, aren't you making a fundamentally religious assertion? And then doesn't that choice lead you to a certain set of coordinates in how you answer life's ultimate questions? So that's where we begin to map out the spiritual landscape by asking, is there something more? And by hearing from two people who say, no. I'm Brian Craddock, and this is Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze. Let me explain how I approach the maze. I love libraries. I love the quiet atmosphere and even the smell of old books. In fact, some of the biggest decisions I've ever made tie back to one particular library on the campus of the University of Southern California. The Edward L. Doheny Jr. Memorial Library is spectacular. It was completed in 1932 with a million-dollar donation from a wealthy oil tycoon whose 35-year-old son, a USC alumnus, had been murdered. The campus is in south-central Los Angeles, but according to the library's website, the architect said, the walls of pale Roman brick with cream-colored limestone trim enlivened with colored marbles are suggestive of the Romanesque styles of northern Italy. The main floor reading room has lofty, ornate ceilings and soaring arched windows, gleaming marble floors in brown and tan checkerboard. The building is a shrine to education and learning. As a new freshman engineering student on campus, I could not resist it. But the books I wanted to read were not in the beautiful reading room. I had been a Christian for less than two years, and I wanted to learn more about the Bible and theology. I wanted to use books like Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, a 1,700-page book that catalogs every word used in the King James Version of the Bible and links it to a numbered list of original Hebrew and Greek words. It's a tool that helps you study word meanings and trace themes through the Bible. I have a copy now, but it's much easier to use a computer. How do you find a book like that in such a massive liberal arts collection of books? Well, of course, the librarians use a catalog with a reference system. Back then, it was the physical card catalog. And this concordance was in the stacks, level nine. That's a sublevel, nine floors underground, accessed by dimly lit stairs or an old rickety elevator. It was in category BS. That's for biblical studies, which was against the far wall. It was in section 425 with other linguistic Bible study tools on the bottom shelf, organized alphabetically by the author's last name. I had to confirm a few of those details, but I still have vivid memories of my time there. It was where I wrestled with the decision to give up my engineering scholarship and transfer to a Christian college to study theology. It was also the end of a scavenger hunt I prepared to impress a certain young woman. I wrote her a song and hid it in BS425.S8. Who would ever use a musty, exhaustive concordance in sub-level 9 as a tool of romance. Thankfully, 
she's still married to me. My point is that you need a reference system to find your way in the religious maze. It should clarify where there are similarities and where there are substantial differences. It should help us discern what issues are most significant and why they matter for everyday life. So in this 12-episode season of my podcast, I will share my system. I will use six key questions to map the spiritual landscape. Of course, I'm not an impartial observer. These questions flow from my frame of reference as an evangelical Christian. But before we're through, I'll explain what I mean by that. I begin with the broad distinctions between world religions and work inward through the disagreements throughout history that prompted the various divisions and denominations within Christianity ending up at my own theological coordinates. But to keep the journey accurate and personal, I've interviewed local people from other standpoints so that you can hear their views in their own words. The first question in my reference system is, does God exist? So this is the top filter for sorting religious viewpoints. It's like asking, on what level is the book located? Or on which continent does a person live? It may seem like an academic issue, but we'll see that it has practical implications for how you approach life. So we begin mapping out the maze by looking at three responses. We'll hear from an atheist, a Buddhist, and I'll share my own response as a Christian. One Sunday morning a month, a group of volunteers gather near the railroad tracks in downtown Kalamazoo. They hand out food, drinks, toiletries, and clothing. But rather than doing it in the name of a religious organization, they call themselves Atheists Helping the Homeless. This nonprofit has several chapters in various cities across the country. And I met with Keith Gasper, who started the effort here in my town, Kalamazoo. When I asked him about the group's name, he explained. We had talked about not using the word atheist in the title, but then we thought, you know, every church does because they're also promoting something. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to show that atheists aren't bad. And, that, you know, when if you were to Google what percentage of your population is atheist or agnostic skeptic, you're looking at 15 to 30 percent. Now, that's a pretty wide range because a lot of people just don't say it. A lot of people just keep their mouth shut because you will get blackballed for it. So we thought it would be important to put the name in there so that we could just show, hey, we're just like everybody else. You know, if you were to ask 10 questions about any standard issue, we fall in the same line as everybody else. We celebrate the same holidays. We don't have any different traditions, really. And, you know, so it was more to try to normalize something that people can sometimes find abrasive. That percentage that Keith mentioned are people who say that they have no religious affiliation. A 2014 survey conducted by NORC at the University of Chicago placed that number at 21%. But a report on the study explains, quote, preferring no religion is not atheism, which is still very rare. In 2014, just 3% of Americans said they did not believe in God, unquote. So I asked Keith why he labels himself an atheist. 
he told me. There are militant atheists who think there's no way there could be a right. God, where in general, I think uh, the average atheist would fall more on an agnostic plane to where uh, we just want to see evidence. And, you know, out of all the 6,000 gods that have been worshipped, you know, we just want to see more that would uh, make us say that, yes, we can confirm or at least have reason to confirm that this is the one. So uh, I'm more agnostic than anything else okay. because the thought of a higher power, there's no way that's not an option. Aliens putting us here, there's no way that's not an option. We just, we don't know. So we're at a very neutral point. Those militant atheists typically come from the elite world of academia, places, uh, with Romanesque-styled libraries. Keith is not a scholar. He works in construction. But he still bases his worldview on the scientific method. He's looking for empirical data to show whether there's something more. That way of thinking can be traced back to Aristotle in the 4th century BC. But it really began to take hold of Western society during the age of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries. It led many to believe in philosophical materialism, the conclusion that life is nothing more than physical matter, the stuff that we can observe and measure. Of course, there have always been what we might call practical atheists, people who live as if God does not exist, regardless of what they claim to believe. So if you think there's nothing more beyond the material world, why bother helping others? When I asked Keith about the basis for his morality, he told me, I think you're going to find this with every religion and every belief. Uh, the easiest answer is do unto others as you'd want done to yourself. You know, I don't want you to punch me in the face right now, which I can only assume sure. that that's reciprocating. So um, the I think the big difference is when we're doing something like this, we believe that there is no afterlife, so this is our one chance to experience something. So even if somebody who is homeless, maybe they got into drugs, maybe they beat the heck out of their wife and got kicked to the streets after they got out of jail, it, you know, even if they screwed up royally to get there, this is their one chance to experience something. So even if us helping can change one experience, one moment in one day and make that better, we just improved their life that much more. Keith thinks that morality is just common sense. But like any charity, his organization struggles to find enough volunteers and financial support. Science suggests that we'll continue to evolve for the better through the progress of knowledge and technology, salvation through education. It holds out the hope of minimizing suffering and holding off death. But could it ever overcome people's selfishness? Will human progress ever bring an end to conflict, suffering, and death? Keith was honest about these struggles. He told me. There's things that you do lose. You know, when grandma dies and there's that comfort of seeing her again, you know, uh, that gets kind of depressing at first. Like if somebody starts to realize that they don't feel like they believe, that's, that depression is pretty common just because you do lose a lot of, a lot of emotional crutches. So you kind of have to look at everything from a different angle and retrain your brain. It, 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 was, it, it was kind of a long road, and it's not uncommon for people to struggle. 
I wonder if Edward L. Doheny Sr. was trying to overcome that same struggle after the tragedy of losing his son. His donation enabled USC to build a temple of human learning and progress. I don't know what his personal beliefs were, but from an atheist perspective, he achieved the best possible good deed. Is that the best one can hope for? As we move on to another part of the maze, we hear from someone who answers our question in the same way, but heads in a different direction. Though not common in the United States, a 2015 study from the Pew Research Center claimed that roughly 7% of the world's population are Buddhists. That's around one in every 14 people in the world. Most of them live in East and South Asia. They account for 93% of the population in Thailand, 35% in Japan, and 18% in China. So to meet a Buddhist, I headed East, but not that far East. I found the Sukokoji Buddhist Monastery nearby in Battle Creek, Michigan. A monk named Chiezon Tomchik recounts how the organization came into existence. So my teacher, the abbot here, is named Sokuzan. He was born and raised in, in Battle Creek. And in the early 1970s, he was introduced to um, the teachings of a Tibetan master. So as you know, there was the communist invasion of Tibet uh, in the late 50s, and there was a huge um, uh, diaspora. The, the monks, the citizens had to leave, and Trungpa Rinpoche somehow found his way to the United States and started teaching here. So Sokuzan met Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in 1973 and uh, really began practicing pretty intensively and went to seminar, seminary in 1980. And then Trungpa died young at 47. And that was in 1987. And then uh, Sokuzan met his Zen master from Japan, Kobenchino Roshi. So he'd been studying for decades. And it kind of started out as just a small study group here in town. He started in the 70s, people getting together practicing meditation, reading about meditation and, and Buddhism. And um, kind of fast forward, I graduated college in 2012 and I had met Sokazan a few years beforehand. And I said, I'm looking at, you know, moving somewhere for a year to practice meditation before graduate school. I was planning on, you know, going forward with a master's degree in geomorphology. And he said, well, why don't you move to Battle Creek? And I said, well, do you have a program? He said, no, but we could create one. <laughs> so I was like, Interesting. You know, the other options were to move across the country, across the world. So I moved here in 2012 and under his guidance started practicing meditation six and a half hours a day. And very slowly it, it began to build. Um, and right now we're at about 10 full-time residents. Siddhartha Gautama is thought to have been born around 563 BC. His father was a chieftain who reigned over a small district on the Indian slope of the Himalayas in a region that borders India and Nepal. He was born into the Brahmin religion, a precursor to modern Hinduism. His father kept him isolated from the world to protect him from seeing evil or suffering. But when he realized what the world was like, he was so disturbed that he left his family to seek answers through extreme asceticism, regularly depriving himself of food, sleep, and shelter over a period of six or seven years. But he came to see that that was no 
better than his previous life of, of pleasure and luxury. So he came to seek what he called the middle way until he finally experienced enlightenment. And so the title Buddha means enlightened one. So how do Buddhists relate to the Buddha? Chiazon explains. The Buddha was not a god, not to be worshipped. He's not divine. He just represents, he saw something about his mind. He taught it to others, and somehow 2,500 years later, people are still trying to see what that, what that is. So it's very much about looking closely at everything for oneself, to look very closely, but you also kind of have to look out for those tricks of ego. You know, like, you can't just look at it out of your bias and your opinions and your prejudice, but to actually see the total package, not just what you're looking at, but who it is you think is looking, and that the whole space really is, is to be investigated. So Buddhism is an Eastern version of atheism. Its teaching is often summarized in what are called the Four Noble Truths. First, life consists of suffering. Second, everything is impermanent and ever-changing. We suffer because we desire things that are impermanent. Third, the way to liberate oneself from suffering is by eliminating all desire. Fourth, desire can be eliminated by following the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right thought right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness, and right meditation. Chiazon summed up many of these ideas when I asked him about the basic problem that we face in life. In Buddhism, the underlying problem is a belief in the solid self, that we, have, uh, we function out of hope and fear, this constant struggle and warfare, hope and fear, hope and fear, hope and fear. And it, it is so suffocating. There's no room to breathe, there's no space, there's no ability to function. Um, I think that the solution is variable. And it's really something I try to be very careful about. Buddhism's not um, a religion that proselytizes. So I know for me, meditation practice seems to help me get to the root of that so that I can live a kinder life. Secular atheism pursues knowledge to overcome suffering and death. It's propelled by hope and fear. But Buddhism is all about letting go, giving up desire to passively accept suffering and death. Chiazon told me this. It seems that when that transition comes, when it's time for this body, this body-mind to go back into the elements, it seems like if you can be very clear about what you're looking at, that transition can be a lot more smooth. Um, it seems a lot of times there's so much fear around death that the moment of death is very chaotic for some people. And perhaps with a little more what we would call mind training, that there might be some ability to see what's happening. There are different branches of Buddhism with views that differ from those of Chiazon. Some believe that people are reincarnated until they achieve enlightenment. We'll talk more about that concept next time as I speak with a Hindu. But by way of contrast now, let me explain where I stand in the maze compared to the worldviews of secular atheism or Buddhism. The Christian worldview can be summed up by the story of three trees. The first is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The book of Genesis begins the Old Testament 
by saying that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't present any arguments, it just makes an assertion. It also says that he created the first man and woman and placed them in a fruitful garden where they could live forever. Genesis 2, 16-17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God gave them responsibility with negative consequences if they ignored his command. But the next chapter tells us that they were tempted by a serpent. Other passages elsewhere in the Bible identify a rebellious angel named Satan as the one speaking through the serpent. He convinced the woman to see God as an opponent who was keeping them from their full potential. Genesis 3 verses 4 through 6 says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So in a sense, they became practical atheists in that moment. They made their decision based solely upon the empirical knowledge that they were able to gather. They disregarded God's commands and followed their desires. And the rest of the chapter tells us of the consequences. They experienced shame, guilt, and conflict. When God confronted them, they tried to shift the blame, the man to the woman and the woman to the serpent. God didn't strike them down in that moment. But the processes of sickness and death began, and they were passed on to all of their descendants. That first sin created a lasting division between humanity and God. So our primary conflict is not just external with the world around us, as the atheist says. It's not just internal, like the Buddhist says. We are at conflict with God himself. He doesn't appear to us as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Nevertheless, in his New Testament letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul argues that the physical world still points us to the existence and character of God. In Romans 1, verse 20, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Then Paul adds in verse 15 of chapter 2 that we also have the work of God's law written in our hearts, informing our consciences. We should seek him, but we don't. Instead, we keep looking for ways to overcome suffering and sin on our own. But God has provided a solution for us in a second tree. It's the cross of Jesus. We need a way to be cleansed of our sins and reconciled with God. And so he entered our world, resisted sin, taught truth, experienced suffering and death, and rose from the dead. I'll say more about all these concepts as we continue this season of my podcast. For now, 
let me quote these prophetic words from verses 4 and 5 of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. The prophet looked ahead and said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I believe that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He opened the way for us to draw near to God. But that does not mean that life is free from suffering yet. We can pray to God through Jesus and trust that he is somehow working through the good and even the bad experiences of our lives. But the story ends with a third tree. That's the tree of life. The tree of life was part of the Garden of Eden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, human beings lost access to it. At the end of the New Testament, however, the last two chapters in the book of Revelation speak of a new heaven and earth, where that access is restored. Those who have been reconciled with God will live forever in His presence. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So is there something more? Does God exist? It's not an academic issue. It has practical implications for how you handle suffering. Where are you in the maze? Do you need to move in a new direction? Are you ready to start believing in God? If you want to learn more about the Christian response, I would direct you back to the passages we've considered today, particularly Romans 1 and 2. If you're already a Christian, do you need to renew your trust in God's sovereignty? You might find my recent series in the Old Testament Psalms helpful. It's called How to Pray in Hard Times, and you can download the complete ebook for free from my website, religiousmaze.org. Or perhaps this discussion would be a good springboard to start a respectful conversation with a friend. Ask them about their view of God. Listen to what they have to say. Try to understand where they stand in the maze. If it would be helpful, please share this podcast with them. May God grant us wisdom and understanding.